Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Al Basti Ecruel, Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. I welcome David Yates and Fergal O'Brien. It is because we're going to have a look back at yesterday's events in some detail. But first of all, gentlemen, good morning. How are you? Breaking news, you didn't train a Saturday winner, which is about the first time this season. What, <laughs> what's didn't. gone wrong? Well, the wheels have come off today. I don't know. Um, they, they ran okay yesterday. Yeah, they did. Sand down the ground was a bit sticky and tacky for us. And uh, I think um, Diamond Fort was a little bit unlucky not to be in the places at uh, Chepsey. fell at the third last. But... Um, but they're both okay. Him oh, and Paddy are fine. We'll talk about it in a bit more depth later on, but things are going great, aren't they? Yeah, I couldn't be happier. You know, it's just with the move. Sometimes life's about timing and um, everything's just gone, slipped into place really nicely. So, um, yeah, fingers long, may it last. Paddy Brennan laid down the gauntlet for you last week. Yeah, well, I spoke to him about that. <laughs> uh, Dave, I'm sure you enjoyed that. I'm sure you enjoyed the bulk of yesterday, though not all of it. Well, the Tingle Creek was... Certainly a, a thrilling race and obviously a, a, a triumph of, I suppose, youth over experience with Defi de Soy at six, beating under so at 11. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, and then, obviously, the, the end of the, the very sad loss of uh, Ublon des Oboe, who, who's a, a hugely popular chaser. Uh, and the, the confusion uh, that arose after the, the race, not only on the track, but certainly behind the grandstands. I mean, it's something that we will come on to, the fact that there were seemingly thousands of punters standing around in the dark for what seemed a very long time, waiting to see mm. what the outcome was and whether they could get their bets refunded or indeed collected. Betting slips all over the place. The yellow flag was raised, which meant the race was voided, the London National, the final race yesterday. And seven jockeys, amongst them one of the heroes of yesterday, Adam Wedge, picked up a 10-day ban effective on the 21st of December. So ruling all those jockeys out of the important and lucrative, potentially, Christmas period, amongst them Harry Skelton and Daryl Jacob and Jamie Moore, all of whom you would have thought would be particularly busy over that period as well. So there's some fundamental questions to ask about yesterday. First of all, were the racecourse right to call void? Second, were the protocols correct in which they voided the race? Third, how did the BHA conduct the inquiry? And fourth, how was this communicated to the public and what lessons can be learned out of yesterday? Let's first of all hear from the man who was the chief steward on behalf of the British Horse Racing Authority yesterday at Sandown Park, Chris Rutter. This is what he had to say to us in the immediate aftermath. Well, the last race, uh, the yellow stop race flag was uh, put in place because there was a stricken horse on the bend uh, just coming into the home straight. Um, and when there is a yellow stop race flag, the race has to be declared void. So the race has been declared void. Now, there were seven jockeys who continued in the race. Uh, the yellow stop race flag was uh, put in place just before the pond fence. And the jockeys were di uh, directed round the fence. It... Um, and from that point of view, 
they, they looked to the, the flat stop race flag was just to the left of them. They appeared to have just bypassed it and bypassed the pond fence and just carried on up the home straight. Uh, for that reason, um, the, all the jockeys who continued in the race were given the 10 day suspension. Well, the yellow, stop, the yellow stop race flag is automatic. You stop riding. The yellow, the yellow flag, you stop riding. There was, there was no chevrons in the, fen, in the pond fence, but they were, the flag was in front of it, so they had to stop riding. Did the jockeys see the flag? There, there, there's some confusion that they said they didn't, but the film clearly shows that the flag was there, and the film also clearly shows that it looks like some of the jockeys have gone to stop and then started again. That's what the film's telling us, but um, I can only go with what I've done. Uh, I mean, the instruction is, the rule is, like, avoid the race, and there's, there's, there's no change. It's either 10 days or nothing, and because uh, it looks like they've seen the flag and they've ignored it, they've all got 10 days. And you say 10 days or nothing. Is 10 days... Uh, that's, that's, that's exactly what it is. Standard penalty. Standard, yeah, that's, it. that's exactly what it is. It starts at 10 days, finishes at 10 days. That is it for not for not, uh, for not for continuing when the race stop flag, the yellow flag, has been deployed. That was Chris Rutter, who was the chief steward on behalf of the BHA at Sandown Park yesterday, explaining events, as you could see in the darkness there, to Rishi Passat, because this took an awful long time. Here's the headline in today's Mirror. Seven riders banned in yellow flag drama. Good to see your subs have been faithful to the situation, well, Dave. Don't reinvent the wheel if there's no need to. And let's have a look at exactly what happened here. Now, keep your eye here on Messrs Harry Skelton and Jamie Moore, who are round about here, and we'll roll it on and just check what they're saying to each other. If you can, as they see the yellow flag quite clearly in the bottom right-hand corner of your screen, there's a conversation between them now. They know that they need to do something. They either need to take evasive action round the fence, or, of course, they should be saying to each other is a yellow flag means stop. Correct, Fergal? Yeah, definitely. I think you can see Jamie actually pointed there. I think if you see a bigger picture, you can, you can see Aidan Coleman shouting at him from, from behind, um, who has pulled up. I mean, it's unfortunate. It's always the heat of the moment sort of thing. And they're, they are... You know, I feel very sorry for Phil Donovan, who, who used to work for me. He's a lovely lad, Phil, and Neil Mulholland's a friend of mine. Um, Phil probably was one of the jockeys who didn't see the flag because he was, he was tucked away on the, on the, on the outside. Um, and, uh, like you said, it was a shame that those two boys, the senior jockeys, um, didn't, didn't pull up. And you can just see on the inside there, there's a chequered flag which is a different signal. The chequered flag is to avoid an obstacle no, in the way. So that may have led to some confusion. We'll come to that with Andrew Cooper in a moment. But they'd already seen the yellow flag, which is quite a clear signal to stop. And they'd heard a whistle as well blown. I should just say that, quoted afterwards, certainly Chris Cook, myself, Graham Clark of the Press Association, spoke to Adam Wedge, we spoke to Jamie Moore, and also to Daryl Jacob. Now... Jamie Moore and Daryl Jacobs said the same thing. They did not see a flag. They heard a whistle. Mm. I just, that's, I'm repeating that quote without comment. Well, that's an important quote, yeah. one that we'll put to the, to the director of racing and clerk of the course in a few moments' time when he joins us on the line. First of all, though, in the heat of the moment yesterday, this is what Dan Skelton, the trainer of Get on the Jaeger, written by his brother Harry, had to say. I knew the second he went down, I stood with Anthony Bromley uh, watching the race, and I said this race could be void and, and I, I went down to the to the rails to have a look to see if I could see anything um, because of where the incident happened I just thought they're going to struggle to get around that um, 
of course the facts are the facts and I'm not going to I'm not going to dispute any of those because they are the facts they can't be disputed a yellow flag was shown very interesting to hear Chris Rutter's opinion mm -hmm. that the jockeys ignored that flag I think that's quite a strong word because they all know what that flag means to ignore it is an is an absolute ban they know that if they ignore that flag they're going to get a ban why would they ignore it now those jockeys have actually said that they didn't see it it wasn't clear it's an s bend coming uh, to the um, to the pond fence, there was one man waving a flag that was clearly going on. They couldn't see behind because the screens had actually blocked the view of the pond fence. So to say that there was no chevrons in it and everything else is absolutely the fact because there wasn't. But it was completely inadequate for the situation to have one flag. I know that's what's in place in the rules of racing, but let's get real, okay? Let's get real, okay? This is 2019. Every time that yellow flag comes out, or nearly every time that yellow flag comes out, there is bands dished out to jockeys. Good jockeys who do their best, try their hardest, and are now, in this instance, going to miss out on 10 days of the most lucrative and busy racing period there is. That's a fact as well. Okay? Now, did they ignore it? No, they didn't ignore it. Because if they ignored it, they would have come in there and said, yeah, we saw it, but we carried on. They didn't ignore it. They're saying they didn't see it. Now, that's an opinion, but I happen to err on human decency on the side of, like, humans tell the truth. And if they're all saying that as a group, then we have a problem. Now, the facts are the facts. They might, they might have this ban, and, and they might not dispute it, and everything else. Okay, so those are the facts. But what I'm saying is those jockeys said they could not see it. It's not acceptable in 2019. It is not acceptable. Something has to change. And that is clear and concise. And if, if it isn't, it, 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 well, it just has to be. Something has to change. The stop race procedure has to be better. The stop race procedure has to be better. You heard that quite unequivocally there from Dan Skelton, who was very articulate, but was he right? The director of racing and clerk of the course at Sandown Park is Andrew Cooper. A, an eventful day, Andrew, and a challenging day for you as well. What do you make of Dan's comments there that it's just an inadequate procedure all told? Uh, yeah, good morning, Nick. Can I, can I just start by saying how sorry all of us at Sandown Park were to lose Hublon de Zobot yesterday, and we, we mustn't forget that at all. He was a warrior. He ran several times at Sandown, won the veterans' chase. Yeah. I fought with everyone connected, Venetia Williams and all the team. Um, <clears throat> the, the stop race procedures which race courses, courses employ... Um, are uh, you know they're, they're, they're clearly clearly known. They're widely distributed. They're advertised in the, in, the, in the weighing room. Jockeys are briefed on them at their seminars, and they've been in place for a number of years. Each race course has its own uh, protocol, its own procedures. You know, fulfilling those instructions that it agrees with its BHA course inspector. And you know, we, we can we can obviously talk about. Sandown's particular ones yesterday um, as we go on here. But, you know, the, 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 the stop race procedure is the first one I've experienced. Uh, there seems to be about what, a handful of these every year, and the, the, the majority of the recent ones have, have gone off okay. So I'm not, I, don't, I don't think I'm particularly going to, you know, we, we, we're dealing with a, a set of guidelines and instructions mm. that the race courses that we need to we need to comply with, and those are the current current instructions. Now, Andrew, obviously, you as a, a director of racing and clerk of the course, when you make the decision 
to to void the race when you make that call we obviously accept you're doing it in in good faith and and for safety reasons but just take me through the the logic in your mind to to make that to make that call yeah i mean and then let's restrict it to yesterday's yesterday's circumstances obviously Hublon des Obos has gone down on the bend uh, at the end of the first circuit with another circuit of the course to go it, it's it's a relatively narrow part of the course. He, it, he was located 100 yards, 200 yards or so after the pond fence, but it is it is a narrow enough part of the course. And obviously, in any in any situation um, where there's an incident on track during the course of the race, my, my, any clerk of the course first thought is can we get this race safely completed? You know, we're trying to think of ways of completing the race, be it by bypassing, sending horses a different way, not, and trying to avoid, unless we can possibly do so, using the yellow flag. In this, in this instance at Sandown yesterday, uh, my head groundsman was immediately on the scene. He, he's there. He's my, my home straight yellow flag man. He reported back to me very swiftly that, the horse was was clearly in trouble. I think he sadly died very very quickly, but he is strewn across the track in in a difficult situation. We had a I'm mm-hmm. in the box at this time discussing discussing things with the uh, stewards team and the and the chair of the stewards panel. You can see what's going on. I, I'm getting I'm getting advice from my me and my team team on the spot. And, and as I say, the immediate advice was this this. Could, this could be a situation where we, we, we may have to avoid this race, but let's just give, let's take a few seconds to try and think if there's a way between us all that we can, we can make this race uh, complete. So I, well, on, well, I was going to say, one of the reasons why I'm grateful for you coming on, Andrew, is because you can clear up one or two of the um, allegations, is putting it too strongly, but one or two of the rumours that were doing the rounds on social media last night about when the race was voided and whether the flag should have been waved a little bit sooner. And as you pointed out to me, uh, there is a flagman in the back of shot at the entrance to the back straight who clearly is aware that something is up uh, and is running across the track with his yellow flag. So the inference was, well, could they not have stopped the race a little bit earlier. If he knew something was up, then surely the race could have been stopped before it got as far as the pond fence. Okay. Now that that individual is my back straight mobile flag man, and he, entirely of his own initiative, and I'll, I'll give him great credit for doing this, has listened and heard the radio talk between myself and the home straight team, and got himself into a position. His position would would be at the start of the back straight. He has got out of his vehicle, got to a position where, if given the go-ahead, he could have waved the yellow flag at that point. Now, my having spoken to him subsequently about events, the final decision from us, from well, it's me, it's my decision to avoid the race, was was given at a time the horses were basically running past him at the turn into the back straight. Right. So he wasn't ever in a position to deploy his yellow flag because we hadn't given the void race go-ahead at that point. So then you, then what, what viewers are seeing is him running back to his van to do as he normally would do, follow the field down the back straight. Which begs the question, could they not have been stopped somewhere down the, the back straight? Well, well, then, perhaps if I just explain the circumstances or, or the, the arrangements at Sandown yeah. for yellow flag, we would have 
three yellow flags deployed on the course yesterday. Which, just, three, just three in total? Yeah, people might think there's one at every fence, but that really, as far as I'm concerned, there's no race horse in this country that has a yellow flag at every fence. Why is that? <clears throat> it's because you're talking, that means there's 12, 13, if not more, yellow flags in circulation. And this is a... This this piece of equipment has a obviously a highly highly important consequence of being deployed, and it, it's been it's been deemed, and it's not just by us as racecourses, it's with BHA support that yes, you need a sort of a, a, an appropriate number of yellow flags to to anticipate circumstances as they might arise, but you really don't want a proliferation of yellow flags around the course in the hands of and no disrespect to people, these are, these are very, often very stressful sort of situations and, and, and things happening very, very quickly. And the scope for error, someone lifting the wrong flag, there's a series of flags that, that every fence attendant has anyway, is, is increased by having a, 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 an additional yellow flag there. And I, I, I think that's right. I, I wouldn't want a yellow flag at every obstacle on my circuit. I think it's unnecessary. And you, you quite happily stand by that after yesterday. You wouldn't say, well, could we look at maybe having two or three yellow flags at various points of the track? So when we are waving the yellow, we can make that statement more obvious to, to the riders, if you see what I'm saying. It, it, just picking up on Dan Skelton's point, but taking into account your point, try and meet you in the middle somewhere. Like it's totally sensible for us to review the events of yesterday as a team and, and, and think about what's happened and what we should, what, what's right going forward. <clears throat> but I come back to I'll come back to one point that my team on the ground and the stewards in the box and myself were firmly of the opinion that we'd set something up that the jockeys would see and that they would put up. That flag is in the middle of the course. He, the, my man is not stood behind a rail. He literally is stood 100 yards down from the pond fence in the middle of the course, exactly as per our, our, our agreed guidelines and protocol. And, and we, as a, we as a team watching the race were sure, as confident as we could be that that flag would be seen and that the jockeys would respond to it. Andrew, you've given us a, a really full explanation of the, of the procedures there, uh, for which I'm very grateful. There's just one other point I wanted to pick up on, and perhaps it's the most important one of all, which is communication to, to the racing and betting public, uh, which was quite widely criticised last night. Now, whose responsibility is it to communicate to everybody at Sandown Park the situation as it unfolds? Well, I think the... As I understand it, and of course I, I was involved in this, in the stewards' inquiry itself, and had to give evidence to it. So, so in terms of what exactly was being or wasn't being communicated, I, I've got no no first-hand experience of. Obviously, I think something that I'm sure will be looked at going forward is the is the fact that the moment a yellow flag is deployed on a course, the outcome of that is that the race is going to be void. This isn't a situation where let's say, in a race where the jockeys take a different, uh, the wrong course and they've all done it, but no one's been disadvantaged and the race can be, the result can be allowed to stand. The rule in place is that once the yellow flag is deployed, it's a void race. So the, 
communication of the void race aspect of yesterday's last I'm sure we, we all can could agree could be have could have been communicated sooner in those circumstances but that would be a BHA responsibility mm. because that that communication can only come from the BHA stewarding team on course Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome back. You're watching Luck on Sunday and time now to reflect on all the positives from yesterday's racing and indeed some of the best week sport as well. Dave Yates still with me, newsboy from the Daily Mirror and the Sunday Mirror nowadays, David. Yeah. And a number of and other titles. Star of the Daily Express. All yeah, of that, yeah. yeah. You can say that with a smile on your face. Fergal O'Brien, who's having a, a marquee season. We were joined by a stable rider, Paddy Brennan, last week, and now here he is to put the record straight. <laughs> yeah. And a man who enjoyed his biggest career win a couple of weeks ago on Happy Diva in the Bet Victor Gold Cup, Richard Patrick. Richard, good morning. Good morning. Hi. Thank you for having me. And, and is it, we spoke to you in the morning after, and it hadn't really sunk in. I suspect you've had plenty of time to, yeah. to let it sink in, enjoy it, watch the replay over and again <laughs> since. Yeah, definitely had a lot of time to enjoy it. Um, really, really enjoyed the moment and... Uh, Hopefully there's plenty more good days to come with here, but um, it's all sunk in now and uh, uh, on, on, to, on to bigger things, uh, hopefully, for you. What is the plan for Happy Diva now? Uh, you tell me she's not now going to go to, to Cheltenham next weekend. No, I believe she's not going. She's, uh, I think her next target's back to the Lady Protectress at um, Huntingdon in the middle of January, so hopefully we get back there and all goes blazing for that. And that's the race in, in which she beats Magic of Light, the yeah. Grand National runner-up last year, isn't it? Yeah, she, yeah, she was second in the year before behind Renee's girl of Dan Skelton's. Um, I think she's a, I think she's a better, stronger horse now. Anyway, so that's uh, she's on, on, it's still improving. We always quite like stories when when a jockey and a horse seem to form a great bond, a great friendship, a great working relationship, and that seems to be the case with with you and her. How much time do you spend with her on a daily basis? I wouldn't ride all that lot at home. Um, doing her work, I'd probably ride her in, all the time schooling. But um, she's so easy and quiet at home to ride, so anybody can sit on her and the. The girls back of the yard, they, they do a great job with her to get in there right for the day, and I'm just lucky enough to ride on the on, on the big days. Well, she's an amazing horse because even in the lean times, of which there were a few last year for for Kerry's yeah. stable, she kept running well, even yeah. when other horses weren't. Yeah, there was a lot of the yard just weren't running great. They would get into two out and just not finishing the races, and you just, just scratching your head, don't know why. But she managed to hold her form all season and continued to run well, and she was she she uh, held the flag for the for the yard the whole season so it's, you need horses like that and it's, finding them is the problem but yeah and for you as a rider have you noticed a significant difference in your in your profile in people wanting to use you since that winner child yeah I think so um, I've been busy since but I think a lot of the rides I would have probably ridden anyway but um, it's all good publicity and it's just a massive confidence thing as well um, you're riding, riding horses like here, she just everything happens so easy, and you you believe in yourself a lot more. So I think you can go into other races and try and try and do the same, and things happen a lot lot easier then. And eleven more rides before you ride out yeah. your claim. Exciting times or anxious times for a little bit of both? Um, yeah, exciting to lose your lose my claim. Hopefully, if I could ride another eleven winners, but um, it's a it's a great feat in itself these days. How hard it is to lose your claim, so that that'll be great to do that. But then. Then it does get tough, and you need the likes of Happy Diva to keep to keep you going and finding finding some other ones to ride. So that's that's the next problem. <laughs> well, that finish between Happy Diva and Brelanda is certainly one of the best finishes of the season, but perhaps bettered by yesterday's Tingle Creek, which was an absolute thriller. Uh, in Deffy de Soy, if we didn't know it before, we know it now. 
Dave Yates. He is a proper champion, this horse, and he, he beat a proper champion as well in under. So with waiting patiently, running an absolute screamer in third. Absolutely, yeah. This was this was new ground for Deffy to say because this was his first grade one at two miles, obviously now in open company. The narrative, I suppose, with this horse in the early part of the season is everyone seems to think that he'll be campaigned at two miles when the ground is soft and then go up in trip for Cheltenham, I think, when uh, conditions get a bit quicker in the spring. JP McManus said afterwards that the starting point at the beginning of the season for this horse was to go for the champion chase, mm. and afterwards he said, so far, so good. And I think Philip Hobbs has played a big part in that as well, calling this division as the right division. That's part, the, the most important part of training, really, isn't it, Fergal? Getting them in the right races. It's very important, yeah, obviously, to, to find the right races for your, for your horses, whether it's a, a grade one or a 0 to 100 handicap uh, around Huntington, you know. So it, it's, a, it's a big part of the job. And, um, but, you know, Philip Hobbs has been doing it a long, long time. He's a, not only a fantastic trainer, he's a, he's a fantastic man, you know, and he, he'll, he'll, he'll campaign this horse superbly. How significant do you think that victory was yesterday for Barry Geraghty, who'd had a pretty tricky weekend at Newbury with Champ and then Newcastle with Boo Barry Garrett has been doing it a long time. I, I know what you, I know what you're saying, but Barry Garrett is riding as well now as you know as I've, I've seen him. You know, Champ. I know he had to snatch up a little bit. It was a bit of low sunlight and stuff, but Barry Garrett is just you know he's one of those. He's uh, he's, he's he's timeless. He's, he's he's just a class jockey, you know. And and you could see him going down to the last. He was sort of just waiting his time to get a good stride, and then once he landed over the last, he was going to pick that horse up. And and you know he had a very willing partner. I thought Brian Hughes' horse went a blinder as well. Waiting patiently. Waiting patiently. Yeah, I thought that was a, a great run. You know, it was a bit slow at the last and was probably three or four lengths down and uh, was running all the way up the hill, you know. I think it was a great run. Where would you like to see Waiting Patiently campaigned now? Probably more towards the Ryanair, you know. Sort of looks like he wanted to step up and trip because he always looked like he was pretty much flat out. I wouldn't want to be the one to tell Ruth Jefferson how to do her job, but... Um, you know, I think he, he definitely looked like, it, you know, a, a bit longer would, would suit him. Let's talk to Philip Hobbs, the winning trainer. Philip, good morning. Good morning, Nick. How are you? What a what a special horse this is. I and mean, we knew he was good. But would you agree that yesterday he took it to another level again? Yes. Uh, obviously, against the more experienced horses, you know, having been a really good novice last year and having won the race at Cheltenham, that was great. But we were stepping up to another level and he came out of it really well. And how was he this morning? Fantastic. Yeah, good. He's um, very tough. He sticks all the racing very well. He's a... Uh, in very good order this morning. I mean, uh, comparisons have been made with another great two-miler that you, you trained. You were one of the, the trainers of Flagship of Morales who raced in these colours and, and won this very race for you and won, a, and won a champion chase. Are the comparisons fair? No. Uh, definitely the soul would be a lot tougher mentally and physically. Interesting. So able to take his racing better and, and, yeah. and, and easier to train? Yes, because he's a very, very um, uh, willing horse who, uh, as a result of that and the fact that he's only six, you know, we, we hope there's more to come. And I, we were talking about the decision to go down the two-mile route to try to, to dominate this division. What was it that made you think that that was the right way forward? Well, I think we, we, feel, we feel he's actually, as far as the trip's concerned, extremely flexible. And I mean, he won over two and a half at Cheltenham, and, and I'm sure he could go three. I don't think it really matters very much, but he has loads of pace, as you could see yesterday. Mm. And you know, the two-mile division was just looking the easiest division at the moment. So 
that was the the uh, reason, really. And, and yesterday, however, he he's beaten a field with some significant depth in, in Underso, who's won so many Grade Ones. We stopped counting about four years ago, and has got great experience around Sander and waiting patiently. A horse who's always had. Yeah, extraordinary talent, even though he may be more fragile than some. And the three were miles clear of a horse who's won a Holden Gold Cup off a mark of 162. So it wasn't a gimme by any stretch, was it? No, I must admit, when I saw the entries, I thought, oh, blimey. We thought it was the easy division, but they do look fairly hot. And actually, of all <coughs> the entries in the race, that um, five of them were rated, were, had a BHA figure higher than us, and mm. two were lower. So, you know, it showed that we needed to improve to be able to win, which thankfully he did. And as far as the rest of the campaign is concerned, does it simply map itself out? You talked about the Clarence House at Ascot. Is that where you're definitively going as the next race? Well, I haven't discussed it with the team as such at this moment, but that would appear to be the obvious race. And as far as Cheltenham is concerned, probably could still be flexible, really, because depending on ground is going to make a difference and opposition as well. So one step at a time and uh, see how we get on. So you're still saying either Champion Chase or Ryanair? I, I would think that has to be the, the, the most likely objectives, in fact. Yeah, yes, it would be, yeah. And, and if, if everything stayed the same in terms of opposition, ground was, as we'd expect, good to soft, say, maybe a tiny bit easier, I'm guessing, I don't want to put words in your mouth, that the Champion Chase would be the more obvious target. Yeah, uh, you mentioned then good to soft, which is probably the most likely. Um, see, I think he'd probably be equally effective Ryanair or Champion Chase. So I think um, it, it, it could be that um, maybe, um, you know, we leave it all to the last minute. But realistically, um, you know, again, one step at a time, let's see what happens in his next race first. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. Welcome back. You are watching Luck on Sunday. A week ago, I was privileged to hear the innermost thoughts, as were you, of Paddy Brennan. And what a fascinating character he is. And much of his assessment of his life and career was based around his relationship with one of my guests today, Fergal O'Brien, who's enjoying a landmark season from his new base. And I'm delighted to say we can spend a bit more time talking to Fergal about that. Now, I don't know how much you enjoyed Paddy last week, but he's a, he's a great character to talk to and an intriguing one as well. Yeah, look, I, I, I did enjoy watching Paddy and I, I've always enjoyed listening to Paddy. You know, I'm very lucky that we've, we've always had a great relationship. Um, you know, we don't socialise that much together, um, but we've, had, we've always had a great working relationship. You know, he explained uh, how he ended up coming from Howard Johnson's to us, you know, mm. it was a phone call through me, um, who I spoke to Nigel and, you know, and um, that's how he ended up coming down to us. Um, and it just went from there, you know, we've always got on. I've always sort of, I've always, um, I've always understood him, I suppose, is, is the long and the short of it, you know, we'd have spent a lot of time in the car going racing with him um, to saddle up and one thing and another, and so we've always had long, long talks and, well... I've always had long listens anyway, so... <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I don't want to make this all about him. No, no, I know. For the second consecutive week. <laughs> and nor does he, I'm sure. No, no, I know. But this is what he said last week. So is it the quest to find the next cue card that's spurring you on, or is it the quest to help Fergal O'Brien become champion trainer that's spurring you on? Probably help Fergal O'Brien become champion trainer. Do you think that's realistic? Absolutely. 
absolutely realistic that he could become champion trainer. Is that your overriding ambition? No. I'm sorry if that sounds unambitious, but it's realistic. Um, to be a champion trainer, you have to train at least 150 horses, 200 horses. Um, that's never been an ambition. My ambition is to enjoy what we do, um, train as many winners as we can, and I get as much kick out of um, an Auto 100 run hunting today, if it runs well, as I will going to Cheltenham and having a winner at Cheltenham. Um, it's about including people in what we do. Um, we're, we're a very open yard, and it's about giving people a, a, a good day out um, and, and enjoying it. It's a, it. This is a fantastic sport. I, I said to someone the other day, I, I always feel privileged to train racehorses, especially jump horses. And... Um, I love to get that across to other people who, you know, might not be able to afford a whole horse or half a horse. Or, you know, we've got a lot of syndicates who have got nine or ten or some with 20 people in it. And what we like is to make them inclusive in, in our success and some of our failures, you know. Um, and, you know, to, to bring them along for the ride. And, you know, um, Chris Coley's been a, obviously my business partner and who helped get me going. And Chris Coley, that... that his business was hospitality mm. and we are at the end of the day we, we're, we're a, it's a great sport we are a leisure industry and to get people involved and to include people and to to get them to enjoy a, a day out racing or a day on the gallops actually I get a bit, as much a kick from someone sending me a text saying thanks for this morning I had a great morning you know I uh, went back to work and it felt great after, after spending a couple of hours with the horses you know I just love that and we get that quite regularly you know so um, that, that's what, that's what I, my, my ambition is to, is to train as many winners as we possibly can every season um, to keep improving and uh, to, to keep happy. Tell me a little bit about your new facility. So, yeah, I'm very lucky. I've got a lovely owner, uh, Jane Tufnell, who happened to be on holidays with uh, Mr and Mrs Lowe, Rupert and Nicky Lowe. And uh, Jane knew that we were looking for somewhere, um, that we'd been given notice from, from Naunton. And um, sort of been the clever lady she was. She picked a moment... Um, knowing that Rupert loves a businessman and uh, she pitched the idea. She obviously sold me very well, so she must have told a few porkies along the way somewhere. <laughs> and um, she arranged a meeting between myself and, and Rupert and Nicky Lowe. And from the outset, uh, they were just brilliant. You know, Rupert and Nicky, um, Nicky especially, just, he just really loved the idea of having the horses there. You know, they haven't owned race horses, uh, Rupert's dad owns some flat horses. But, um, you know, Nicky rides and uh, daughter's done a bit of eventing and stuff. And when I turned up there, I just, it, yeah, uh, there was the, the barns were there, the buildings were there and, and nothing else. And, you know, I wouldn't claim to have the most vision in the world, but I just felt something there. And um, they, they drove me around and we looked at a couple of different places where we could put some gallops in. And like Paddy explained last, last week, is that we took four horses over there and we, we, we rode up four or five different options and, and uh, the, the, one of the options where we put the gallop in now, so um, it all went from there, yeah. Because when you were at Naunton, you'd been there for a long time anyway, when you were assistant to Nigel Twist and Davis, and you had great years, years together, and then you went back and rented the yard just over the road, essentially, yeah. and used the, used the same set of gallops. Yeah, yeah, and it was, you know, we put a similar gallop into to, to what's at Naunton, you know. So, but, you know, going back, you know, four years ago, it suited everyone. You know, the top yard was empty, so financially it suited Nigel and Cathy. Um, I was, again, having to go out of where I was because the farm had been sold. And um, it just suited everyone, and it, it, it kicked starters again, you know. How anxious did it make you that you had to leave? I mean, it must have been difficult for you when you first first realised 
Yeah, definitely. You know, I, I still I knew I had another years. I knew I, I was I was told in um, sort of May eighteen, I think it was, mm-hmm. and and you know I knew I still had a, another. You know, I had to, I have till July twenty um, on my lease, but you know at the same time I was always conscious that. Willie Twiston Davis and Ryan Hatch wanted to have a business and uh, start their business up. And, you know, I didn't want to hold them back. We'd outgrown the yard anyway. You know, we had 54 boxes there, I think it was. Probably had 75, 80 horses on our books. So, you know, it was always a constant juggle. Um, but we were doing well there. So, you know, we would have probably tipped along and, and kept juggling. But it was the it was the kickstart that we needed. And mm-hmm. it suited everyone. And, and, you know, once we got going... Um, and we started looking and things came along, yeah. So now you must feel great. Yeah, a million dollars, yeah, I do, I really like, do. Like master of your own destiny a little bit more. Yeah, definitely. You know, it, that's, yeah, you've hit the nail on the head there. You know, you know, we had probably 25, 30 people at the yard on, on Saturday morning. You know, it's our place. I'm not treading on eggshells. I'm, you know, don't have to worry where the cars are parked. And, you know, Cathy was an absolute fantastic um, landlady, but, you know, but it used to get very busy there and, We'd always be worried that someone would block her in, or someone would block Sam in. He's trying to get out to go racing, you know. And it's just something you don't need to need to be thinking about on a Saturday morning when you when you got your work mornings. And that's the other thing we've been able to change our work mornings back to to Tuesdays and Fridays. So Saturdays are a lot more relaxed for us, you know. You're not trying to have to work horses plus having 25 people there, which we encourage. We love people coming, you know. And people still talk about you as up and coming and a new kid on the block. But yeah. you've, you've been part of the furniture of British and Irish racing for. Well, uh, I, I mean, I don't want to make you feel old, but for quite a long time now, and you've got a lot of experience. So oh. Tell me where it all really began. Alex Hammond came to the yard the other day, and she thought I'd been training 20 years. I've actually been training eight years yeah. I've been training. So I'm not a new kid on the block, and, and you know, I'm, I've been nomadic a little bit. But the, the lovely thing about Ravenswell is, you know, I've got a 20-year lease, mm-hmm. which, you know, which could be extended as well if I, if I live that long. Um, but, yeah, so um, I didn't. I, I worked... While I was at school in, in Irish, I saw very little to do with Irish racing at all. Mm. So I've been in England since I was 16. And I, I suppose the underlying fact is that, is that I've been very lucky, very, very lucky. And, and you know, no one, you, you can't underestimate what luck does for you in life. Um, and I've been lucky that I've been in, in the right places at the right time and met the right people. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Equiwell Dubai. Well, where do you start with my special Luck on Sunday guest this week? There is hardly anything he hasn't done in this sport. From riding big winners to founding newspapers to being the face of televised racing for three decades. Let's just have a reminder of him 33 years ago. Sharastani now takes over, Walter Swinburne goes for home, he's got the race, and now we see the answer to the question, would Darcy Bray get the trip? The answer is he gets the trip very, very well. Look how he's running on. He's now got the action, but getting too far behind is what's fixed him, I'm afraid. Here's the horses, he makes ground all the way to the line, they're now hitting this final little bit of rising ground. If he was ever going to not stay, he wouldn't run up there. He really runs up this, he's catching Sharastani all the way to the line, as Greville gives him a couple of cracks there, there's cracks, he's closing, the, he's down, he's only beaten half a length, and I have to say, it's a personal opinion, I think he should have won a minute. Just was one of those things, he settled down, the horse, who'd always reacted quickly for Greville before, he relaxed too much, Greville Starkis told us he got too relaxed, and when he went to attack, you can't do that, 
through Tatman Corner. Remember Leicester Pickett's uh, diary victories. He always got himself into a position before Tatman Corner. I know Golden Fleece came hurtling up for uh, a million miles an hour, but it's very rare for that to happen. And uh, that was a derby, I'm afraid, that was uh, a derby lost as much as it was a derby won. But horse racing has always been the exact science, and I can tell you, trying to ride a racehorse, they aren't pits of machinery. If things begin to go wrong, they tend to accumulate, and that, I think, is what happened in the Derby 86. And he hasn't changed a bit in the intervening period. Bruff Scott, good morning. Well, it's nice. The sad thing about looking at that is, of course, it was a great, extraordinary event, but Walter and Greville are both dead now. You know? And so um, I feel this awful thing about people saying hello like this, is that, uh, OK, you're saying hello to me because I'm still alive. But anyway, <laughs> I'm not, I don't want to be very clear because I'm going to tell a couple of things. I'm not going away. I just want to do some other things. And also, you need to move on because other people need to do the things you're doing. I know you want to look forward to, to projects. Uh, the reason I, I chose that is because it's one of my, uh, as doing this job, it's one of my favourite pieces to camera that is still available on, in the archive. I didn't know it was there. <laughs> because it was... It was rare enough now, but it was even rarer then for an anchor to stand and deliver. This is a, a derby that was as much lost as it was won. And in my personal opinion, Greville Starkey has made a cock up here. And, and it wasn't popular to, to go to put your neck on the block then. Did, did you, were you conscious of that when you were doing it? Uh, I suppose so. I mean, the problem is an anchor, you, you, you're trying to get everyone to talk to you, as you know. Yeah. And if you actually, and also you don't know the information that the. Jockeys is particularly difficult because with footballers, it's only the footballer and the ball. But when you've got the horse, and so if you ask a jockey what do you do, he says the horse was hanging, so I couldn't pull it out. So then you can't shop it because he said it was hanging. But he may have actually been... I mean, to me, actually, I mean, I feel almost harsh. The fact is he got too far behind. It wasn't, it wasn't all his fault because of the, the tactics were to drop him in. But once he dropped in, he was stuck. So it was a derby loss. Yeah. You know, it was a derby loss, there's no question about that. And the danger is people don't say it. Uh, we, we don't... It is very difficult, but I think it's getting better. And the thing is, well, it's much better. We're beginning to get very high-powered jockeys on board. Mm. You know, you've brought all these people through. And when they say it, you can't complain. If Ruby Walsh says, look, he should have he gone for a long one, he can say it. But if somebody who's never sat on the horse says it, he may be right... But the jockeys then get resentful, then they won't talk, and it all gets, you know, people get... We get the worst thing in racing is it's... It's best thing and the worst is it's got a lot of attention on, on, on itself. But the worst thing about it is that they all squabble so much. So do you think it's imperative, then, that your, your major analysts of a race are people who've done it, and not just people who've done it, but people who've done it to a very high standard, so that they can't be second-guessed? No, it's not imperative, but because there are some very, very good analysts, you have them on your show... Uh, who have never sat on a horse, you know, and made of shapes that you clearly couldn't. But, and they're very, very good analysts. The problem is, within a very small uh, little parish, which racing is, we have to remember that, mm. when you look at your big studios and things, it's a very small parish. Is If they're criticised by somebody who hasn't ridden, the jockeys get cross and they won't talk to you and all that sort of stuff. And trainers too. Whereas if a top trainer or top jockey says, look, in my opinion... I think he should have gone earlier. It's only an opinion. I mean, you know, the fact is that it's inexact. If you'd gone earlier, I mean, if, if he'd ridden Dancing Brave right out there second, I mean, he never rode him up there second, remember? When he won the arc, Pat Henry didn't ride him up there second or third. 
he dropped him right out and he pulled him back in on the turn. Pulled him back in, so he came last. I mean, that was the most daring bit of race riding I've ever seen in the, in the arc. And I know one of your favourite races, and certainly one of the, oh, yeah, your most a, enjoyable it's broadcasting experiences as well. It's my most enjoyable broadcasting experience. Also, it's the greatest waiting race I've ever seen, or ever will see, because of the, you know, as you know, the thing about race riding is, is which everybody wants to have, is, almost wants to have, is nerve, mm. to actually hold your powder. It's a galloping card game, to hold that ace. And Darcy Brave had the ace, but, I mean, there were very good horses who all kicked and he could have kicked early, and he pulled it back in. Pat he pulled Darcy back in. And Bering was a big thing, and, and let Bering go first. I mean, he came so late that the local television missed him completely. And Channel 4, doing the replay, yeah. had to stitch in another one, and I had to stall for about 40 seconds while Andrew Franklin stitched in another shot that we had, a private shot. And if you look at the replay, we show you, you do see him go past the line, but you didn't in the real time. And this is the days before everything was digital on on servers, so you actually had to physically... There were men doing, you know, cut and paste. Mm. I mean, that sort of stuff. Anyway. But exciting. Oh, yeah. I mean, as you know, live broadcasting is exciting. I mean, it's, a, it's not race riding, but it's exciting. And I, I mean, I find it... I mean, I certainly find it absolutely terrifying to start with. I mean, I still remember the very first broadcast I did for BBC, handed in by O'Sullivan. And he said something quite nice, and now to Bruff Scott, and I've got a microphone on me, and I absolutely looking there, terrified. <laughs> and according to the private eye, but it's not true, I said, there is the unmistakable uh, uh, um, shape of Joe Mercer, uh, or is it Lester Piggott? <laughs> <laughs> but I did say there is... Funny enough, Oaks, you did say, is it Lester Piggott, <laughs> separately, but that, I didn't say it at that time. Is that why you did it, because it terrified you, because you needed something to replace the fear? No, I did it out of desperation, because I messed up everything else, you know, I, failed as a jockey and I walked away from doing sort of what my mother-in-law uh, called a proper job and I've never really had a proper job since. What would your m mother-in-law have liked you to be doing? I don't know, sort of, I don't know, some sort of, I mean, it was a, the story is a bit unfortunate but before I got married, my mother-in-law was a little bit of a dragon, um, uh, <laughs> met my, my father had the sort of meeting with mother-in-laws and things and unfortunately the week before, um, I, I had been in front in a big race at Haydock, which is on televised, and the horse, first time in blinkers, was a bit free, and it did one of those spectacular dive halfway round, and they're close up on me, and it was a spectacular dive, it was a 20-run hurdle race, and they all galloped over me. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was knocked out and stuff, but needless to say, in those days, I rode the next day, I fell again. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> because it was such a spectacular fall, they showed yeah. it again on 10 o'clock news. And that's when they sort of met, and it was a bit unfortunate. And my mother-in-law said the magic word to my father, won't you get a proper job? Um, but anyway, I, I never got a proper job, but I just keep... I, when I stopped racing, when I stopped riding, you know, what am I going to do? And luckily, the year, previous year, you know, the story in 1970, yeah. I, I had a badly broken ankle, and those days it took ages to keep... And I was stuck for the 1970 World Cup watching the telly, and ITV had the panel on, which was uh, footballers talking about football, which you'd never done before, and it sounds so obvious. They used to have sort of pundits mm. and nice chaps, you know, and the same thing was happening on racing. And I did say, I rang up Julian Wilson and said, look, I could do this. Because um, I, mean, I actually 
I knew about race riding. I didn't know about broadcasting, and I didn't have a. I'd never been unlike people like you. I'd never been school acting or anything like that. I hadn't got a very good voice, but I actually had something to say. And the one thing about broadcasting, if you can't be good, be different. Because after a bit, you get used to broadcasting. Because in the end, it's, as you know, well, we do so beautifully, but it's, it's only a conversation. You're, you're spot on. Uh, I think that point of difference is, is crucial to a lot of people's careers, isn't it? Something that's th their unique yeah. selling point. And if you, but if you get that identifying after price. a bit, then you're not so terrified of broadcasting. Because you realise it's only conversation. Yeah. The danger with television, as anyone knows who's done it, is when you start doing it, you back away or you address the microphones if it's, a, if it's a big room. And also, we saw you there at the Derby. And of course, in those days, 86, the Derby was still a big deal. Still a big national Oh, Wednesday, event. Big, big, it was a big, big thing. And do you feel, as a broadcaster, that the key is to, to play your game rather than to play the event? So if you're playing the event, essentially it gets you more nervous than perhaps you ought to be. I think so. I think the most important thing about broadcasting is the first part of the word. It's, it's, it's trying to share yeah. it's broadcasting. And it's, you know, it's the old line, you've got, only got two people, the people, you there, but you're trying to say to the camera, look, you know, come on in, but this is what's happening. And also, to not, I mean, there's one thing I was told very, very early on, which I've always tried to sit to, is never, never overestimate your audience's knowledge or underestimate their intelligence. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. So, Richard, hi, apologies for keeping you waiting. Thanks for talking to us. No problem, Lee. Um, you probably heard a little bit of what we were saying there, and Dave was saying you didn't see the difference between the apprentices and the conditionals, flattened jumps. But just let's start with um, why you think it's the wrong move to, to, to give the apprentices back more of their, of their earnings. I'll, I'll, I'll try and speed through exactly what happened. There was an article Lee Motherhead wrote in the Racing Post... I mean, it was badly researched and very sort of written to have a maximum impact against the trainers. Now, realistically speaking, I read it, and anybody reading it thinks that trainers are making fortunes out of apprentices. Well, Lee completely got it wrong, and so badly I actually rang him and said, look, Lee, do you know, actually know? And to his own admittance, he says, no, I don't actually know how it works. He says, can you explain it to me, and would you go on the record? Well, I short-shifted him. I thought, well, here's a guy writing an article have maximum impact against trainers and he doesn't even know what he's talking about. Well, something I would like to get clear is the way the, 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 the fee is split at the moment and myself and Richard Hughes spent four hours in the BHA and the PGA explaining. So there's a £7 claim, it's a 50-50 split. When an apprentice rides for me, there is VAT included in the riding fee. So they decide, they split the fee 50-50, I get half, he gets half. But out of my half, I have to give £21, something 19 pence to the VAT man. So there's no such thing as a 50-50 split. It's 60-40 in favour of the apprentice. 55-45 is 62-38. And then the new riding fee they're talking is 80-20. So the actual split is 97% of the riding fee goes to the apprentice. And 3% goes to the trainer once he's paid the VAT. So let's get that one clear. It's 50-50, 55-45 and 80-20 does not exist in real terms. Now, 
when we sat at the meeting myself and Hughesy, we tried to get this across. We tried to get them that we, you know, what we do for the apprentices would, would, have, would have been particularly rude. They haven't listened. You know, we teach them, we give them the experience, we keep horses in training. I've, I've got four horses here for, for kids to ride. I pay all that expenses. I, I do everything. And I just feel that they didn't listen to us. Now, without being particularly rude, we sat down there, myself and Hughes, he took a day off that we probably didn't need, headed down to London, and they have just completely ignored us. So realistically, in real terms, under the new rules, if an apprentice goes racing, I will get three quid for him riding. Now, what they seem to have forgotten, well, it wasn't actually in the, in the art. I actually pay him for a full day, whether he's there or not. So realistically, I am sending him off to the races, paying him a full day's wages for three quid. Well, without being particularly rude, why, 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 why would I want to do that? You know, it's, it's. I might as well have another lad in and pay him the same wage. You know? Why is it, Richard? Do you think that the jumps trainers don't feel the same way? You just heard Fergal saying that he was quite happy to wave Connor Brace's half last year, and that conditionals are moving to full pay. Just. There does seem to be a bit of a disparity, doesn't there, between jumping in the flat? Does, does he pay him a full day's wages as well? as? Yeah, 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 full day's wages. He's riding one of my horses today. And you, you're paying him to, 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 to work and ride? Yeah. Right, well done. I'll take my hat off to you. I'm, I'm skint, um, though. The long, the long <laughs> short is, I mean, thanks to the article, I, I got my secretary to, to pull out two, two uh, accounts of apprentices, £7 claimer and £3 claimer. Now, with the, seven, the three pound claimer, he had 35 rides, three winners. His total income was £4,522, mm -hmm. of which I got £475 of that. Now, I said, just work out how many days he was here working. So, time worked. It cost me, he, he was in for five and a half days. Now, it cost me nearly 1,700 quid to pay him. I actually lost 1,200 quid on him that month. Richard, is there why, a... Why would I want to, 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 to have someone in the air that's actually losing money? Yeah. Obviously, the, this was triggered by the fact that apprentices were saying that they weren't having their, their, their working expenses paid rather than their salaries paid, that their working expenses paid. Um, were it not for that, do you not think we'd still be in the same situation? I, if the trainers had been paying apprentices expenses as they're supposed to have done under the, under the terms of the agreement, uh, the existing agreement between all the licence holders, would the situation not have arisen? I, don't, I, I honestly don't know why it got to this stage because, I mean, realistically speaking, I, I was listening to Dale Gibson the other day there saying trainers will make six figures out of apprentices next year. I, I mean, I just don't know where he's getting the figures from. I, I genuinely, when, when myself and Husey were up to me, I genuinely don't believe they had the grasp of The PGA don't have the, and the BHA don't have the grasp of what it actually costs us to have an apprentice, what we actually do for them. I, I remember driving down to a race meeting there one day, and the apprentice, I won't mention his name, was sat in the car, and the owner rang up that day and wanted to jock him off. Now, I quickly picked my phone up. I knew where the conversation was going. Now, I'm not blaming the owner because he, he wanted Christoph Sumion to ride the horse. Fair enough. Right? Mm -hmm. Now, I sat down. I was, luckily, I was in the back of the car. There was three of us in the car. There was two in the front of it. And, and without being particularly rude, I, there was no way I was putting Christoph Sumion on the thing. And a long story short, luckily for me, the horse won the race. Now, if that horse had gotten beaten, I could have lost five horses. 
So these are little things that doesn't sound serious, but I put my neck on the block for that kid. Mm. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. You've been listening to the Luck on Sunday podcast, the weekly digest of the best bits from Luck on Sunday, the programme that brings you the best guests and insights from around the racing world.